Breachside Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. Salutations, everybody. This is Tales of Malifaux, brought to you by the Breachside Broadcast and a foreboding sense of fear. I am your announcer, bringing you another two looks at some famous names from the city. But first, an update. You should recall a few episodes back, we announced a contest. We asked our listeners to show us the deepest horrors of their nightmares. I have the honour of revealing the winner at the end of the show. But it wouldn't be a contest without showing you some of the honourable mentions, or as I like to call them, first and second losers. This is from... Uh, an Iggy. He hasn't left any second name, or an address, or much of a letter really, it's sort of burnt. Uh, anyway, Iggy has sent us a great drawing of a giant rat creature, all fangs and snapping snake-like tail. Thanks, Iggy. And this here from little Harvey Nix from Royston Lane. He's quite the wordsmith, having written us a delightful poem about the last nightmare that kept him awake all night. He writes about a giant clock, a city in flames, and lines 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 and lines. Archonists. The clockwork horse reared up jetting a blast of steam into the night air, and Colette Dubois' heart was won. Look at it, Cassandra. Is it not beautiful? Is it not exquisite? She turned to her companion with a mischievous gleam in her crystal blue eyes. Is it not mine? Why is it not mine? Cassandra rolled her eyes, an act that would have given any of her male admirers, which is to say any man who had ever seen her, weak knees and an overwhelming urge to compose romantic verse, and shook her head. I am going to check on the deliveries, she said, feigning a petulant tone. Ramos' man said he wanted those out before midnight, once you're done admiring the tin pony. Colette gasped as she peered through the stage door of the Star Theatre to the cobblestone lane beyond. Not just one, but a team of horses, Cassandra, a veritable team, a wonder of the age. Damp night air was falling, and she fastened a jade clasp on her fur cape quickly as she talked. You go down, deal Ramos' messenger, butter him if he's a man, or oil his pistons if he's a machine. I will be along presently, just as soon as I can persuade the gentleman in that carriage to give me the name of his craftsman and a letter of introduction. But you are quite right, dear friend. What would I do without you? I simply cannot. Colette opened a box on the stand by the door and removed the contents. Be seen in public without a new hat. She pinned the small-brimmed, high-crowned topper with a purple silk wrap onto her chignon and checked her appearance in her purse mirror with the same winning smile that had the punters flocking to the star in droves. They'll all be wearing these by the weekend, Cassandra. Mark my words. She shooed her friend away with quick flicks of her white silk gloves. Go, go, go. We cannot keep our underground guests waiting. And then she stepped out into the lane, tucking her more unruly brown curls under her hat. 
She had removed her stage makeup after the evening's performance, and had applied something more subtle, if no less striking. Her long hawk-hat cape played out behind her as she arranged her face into a perfectly lipstick mew. Whoever owned these marvellous creations wouldn't know what had hit him. The team of four clockwork horses stood at the end of the lane, pouring at the cobbles and shaking their heads in perfect mechanical mimicry. As Colette approached, the amber gaslight of the street lamps revealed the workmanship to be pure artistry. Sweeping equine curves of polished brass, detailed with the most remarkable filigree encased clockwork, so intricate and mesmerizing in its action that Colette resolved to acquire one, even if it meant placing a mortgage over the star itself. She raised a gloved hand to the face of the nearest, gently stroking the gleaming muzzle as only the faintest of whirring sounds came from within. It snorted, a fresh cloud of steam coming from some internal reservoir, along with the warm tang of engine oil. There was no maker's mark or name she could see, and she followed the bridle and harness back towards the coach. If the horses were made to appeal to more delicate and detailed tastes, then the coach was surely made to attract a more ostentatious-prone audience. No less ornate, it was, however, hugely proportioned in iron and brass. Bedecked with gold trim and ivory rails, with wheels that would not have looked out of place on a frontier locomotive. No horses of flesh and blood could ever hope to pull this rolling townhouse. But even the slightest motion of the clockwork mares had the coach rocking gently on its industrial springs. There was no driver she could see, but the reins fed into a complicated arrangement of tubes and pistons at the front. The door was open, the steps extended, and a warm glow within fell onto the cobbled lane without. Never one to decline such a clear invitation, even one that an unaccompanied lady should on no account accept. Colette banished discretion to the ether, and peered into the coach. Upon seeing a hand, she paused for a moment as the body was still hidden in shadow, waiting until she was motioned forward. Within, velvet seats lined the walls, and shielded gas lamps brushed gold over the magnificent fittings and heavy silk brocade curtains. A mahogany folding table sat nested in the centre. All it needed was a fireplace and a butler, Colette mused, turning to greet her host. And his gun. Instinctively her hand went to a concealed pocket on her scarlet dress, but a quick motion of the gun stopped her, and then she saw who held the weapon. Ah, she whispered, incredulity banishing the alarmed expression on her face to the same place as her discretion. The man's unshaven face betrayed nothing but hatred. He was stick-thin, old and hunched with a choleric look. Black eyes like bullet holes sat too close together under graying eyebrows that met in the middle. His filth-brown city coat and tattered grey tweed suit that had known more owners than cleanings looked as out of place in these surroundings as an urchin at the governor's ball. Black Cyrus, spat Colette as her wits returned. She arched an eyebrow. I had hoped that if I ever saw you again, you would be dead. It's cold comfort that you only smell as if you are. The carriage door slammed shut, and Colette rocked back on her heels as the carriage jolted forward. Her natural grace and practiced dexterity kept her upright, though Cyrus had to steady himself on a handrail, although his gun never wavered. Without a word, he reached forward with his free hand, waving it over her dress and cape. A polished silver ring gleamed on his dirt-stained thumb. No doubt he'd taken it from the same gentleman who had owned the coach. The ring emitted a tone like a bell, and every time it did, the hand unerringly found a hidden pocket 
and he quickly retrieved a soul stone. In moments, Black Cyrus had relieved her of not just a fortune, but of her best means of defence. He was not done, however, and before the coach had reached the end of two-mile ride, he had also taken every mirror she possessed, and a great many other objects of varying degrees of sharpness, hidden in lacings, laces, or loops. Cyrus sat down with a hacking, dry cough that it took her a moment to realise was laughter. He stuffed the stolen items in a reddish woolen sack. Always know your enemy, love. I'm certain I taught you that. Colette sat, lacking other obvious options. Without her soul stones, she was no match for a gun, and without her mirrors, she lacked a way to call her girls or easily escape. This was quite the situation. Outside the coach's windows, the gas lamps of the Guildguard station on Meeple Mews streaked past. The horses seemed to know where they were going. Enemies it is, Cyrus, she said with an icy calm she was far from feeling. I should be thankful. I run out of those stones so quickly. What's it been? Ten years? What do you want? In it obvious, love. Your head on a stick'll do, you traitorous, ungrateful wretch. Oh, you've had it coming, girl, for a long time. After everything I've done for you, everything I taught you, you stabbed old Cyrus in the back, the back, and stole it all so you did. You think I'd forget that? The money was mine, Cyrus. I earned it with every graft and steel and con you pushed me into. You just took it off me and called it expenses. I was only a girl. I didn't know any better, at first. She shrugged decorously, and I didn't stab you in the back. I was trying to stab you in the chest, but you started to run like the weasel you are. And now, love, you're going to give it all back. With interest, eh? He shook the woolen bag. This is just for starters. I'm not stupid, Cyrus. I know you won't let me leave this coach alive, and you've got everything I had. What else can I give you? The coach lurched as it turned into the rutted cobbles of Clapper Lane. They were heading for the river then. The secret. She frowned, unsure if she'd heard correctly. The secret? Don't play coy with me, love. Don't make me hurt you. Look at you. A girl like you, old lady at the ball. Your own theatre. The Governor General himself what comes to see you. You? Running your own smuggling scam? Yeah, I knows about that. He spat and stabbed the gun at her. You've got a secret, all right, and I want it. Whatever power you magicked here, or whatever secret thingamajig you got, I want it. Whatever can make you the queen of this pissant town's gonna make me a lord up here. I already got me this lovely coach and four C. Now give. Colette started to laugh. Low at first. But soon she was racked with fits of laughter, tears welling up in her eyes, although there was no humour in her bitter mirth. Cyrus ground his blackened teeth in anger. Oh, Cyrus, she said when the laughter had subsided. You misunderstand so completely, I almost don't know where to begin. She cast her eyes around and spotted a sealed pack of cards on the table. Let me speak a language we both understand. May I? He snorted, which turned into a series of hacking coughs that eventually subsided. He opened a brass panel in the wall beside him. Bejeweled dials and levers gleamed in the gaslight, and he adjusted them, keeping one eye on Colette. The coach picked up speed. 
For old times' sake, like, I'll let you do whatever you want till we reach Harry Cross Bridge. Then I'll kill you. You tell me your secret and I'll make it quick, like. Hold out on old Cyrus and I'll make it hurt. I'll take it out of you in blood. She slipped her gloves off, opened the pack of cards and shuffled. She riffled them on the polished surface, arching their backs in a dovetail before cutting the deck and placing it between them on the table. Ain't nothing you know I didn't teach you, love. Ain't no new tricks under the sun. We're not under your sun, Cyrus. We're under mine. Colette held her breath. Would this work? If not, she was as good as dead. Let's play Queen's Return. Deal me a card. Cyrus eyed her for a moment, and then, the gun steady, leaned forward and flipped the top card, the Queen of Hearts. Colette pulled down the casement window a fraction, kissed the card, leaving a lipstick rose, and tossed it out to be swallowed by the night. She sent a silent prayer after it. She shuffled the deck again, working a few flourishes into the routine, not to impress Cyrus, who snorted. You'll have to get up earlier than that, love, but to steady her shaking hands, and cut the deck into four even piles. There are many powers in Malifaux, Cyrus. They're the ones who always rise to the top, all by themselves. She flipped the top card of each stack, placing them beside their piles. Four kings. Here are four. Each of them runs his own little kingdom. She tapped the four stacks of cards. She flipped the new top cards in each stack over, all jacks. She placed them beside the kings. Just below king comes his knave, Cyrus. Sturdy, uncompromising men who go armed into the night and reduce the king's troubles. Would you be a knave, Cyrus? Or do your ambitions stretch further? She picked up the four stacks of cards, shuffling them together, leaving the kings and jacks on the table. And this is Malifaux. All the dreamers and hopers and wanderers. I sometimes think Malifaux is built of all the dreams of those who come here. But it's older than any of us. What does that say about our dreams? Or us? She paused, and with a superbly disguised thumb flick, an ace of hearts jutted out from the middle of the deck, face up. And this is me. Ace is high or low, love. Dad will be telling. Catch. She tossed the deck and Cyrus caught it, eyeing her suspiciously, but she had made no move for his gun. Look through it. What for? You'll know when you see it. Don't do nothing stupid, girl. He gnawed a sore-ridden lip. All right. With his free hand and with surprising dexterity, he flipped the cards one by one up over the deck, exposing their face and then slotting them in at the bottom. After he'd gone through about two-thirds of the deck, he stopped. It was the Queen of Hearts, with a lipstick rose on it. Colette tried not to smile. It was working but still only a third of the way from the bottom of the deck. A long way to go. Cyrus shrugged. You palmed it at the window, didn't you? He pulled his own window down an inch and flicked the queen out of the car with a smirk. Outside, the sound of the wheels faded as the lane opened out into Governor's Quadrant, then were lost as the coach raced past a patrol of thundering iron peacekeepers, emitting steam as they lumbered through the square. Colette retrieved the pack and shuffled it hand over hand while she talked. Control, power, freedom. What man doesn't seek these things? And with another flick of her wrist, the Ace of Hearts emerged once more, 
and she placed the pack between the four of kings and their jacks, slapping her card face down on the top. She left her finger on it. And here's where I sit in Malifaux, at least according to you, Cyrus, at the center of it all, with my control and power and freedom and all the people below clamoring to see me and my girls. The coach lurched again as it turned into the busy thoroughfare of Southing Boulevard. The bridge wasn't far now. What was taking so long? She handed the deck to Cyrus. Look through it, like you did before. Please, she added with an indulge-me smile that took all her stage skills to fake. Scowling, he started to flip through the cards single-handed again. My patience is wearing precious thin, love. I think... He stopped about a third of the way from the top. The Queen of Hearts winked up at him with her lipstick eye. He grunted. It's a decent trick, girl. Don't mean nothing, though. Ain't gonna save your ride. He took the card and placed it in his top coat pocket. Colette again reclaimed the pack. Control, power, and freedom. But am I really in control of where I am and what I do? Or am I at the beck and call of the others? She lifted the nearest king, and there was the ace of hearts underneath. She lifted the ace, put it back into the deck, and shuffled. The next king. Do I have any real power? Or is there always someone standing over me? She lifted that king up, and again there was the ace of hearts. She shuffled it back into the deck once more. Do I really have any freedom in this city of kings and dreamers? Or is it all just an illusion? She sat back and made a go-ahead gesture to Cyrus. He lifted the third king carefully and chortled. There was nothing under it. I'm not without my wiles, Colette said, gesturing at the last king. And sooner or later, all illusions must end. Cyrus snatched the last king up and threw it with a snarl across the coach. The ace of hearts lay on the polished wooden tabletop. The rattling of the coach eased, and Cyrus leered as the coach moved from cobbles to the smooth, wide flagstones of Hurry Cross Bridge. And end it does, love. A sorry tale, to be sure. But I don't buy a word of it. And here comes the ending, courtesy of old Cyrus. Colette gathered the cards, shuffled the deck, and placed it in the centre of the table, her fingers shaking. Her hands were clammy. It was now or never. One last lift through the deck, Cyrus. For old time's sake. It's all I ask. We're not across the bridge yet. With a gun pointing directly at her, Cyrus bowed with as much malevolent condescension as he could muster, and grinning flipped the top card over. His hand immediately shot to the top pocket of his coat, and came away empty. The Queen of Hearts, with lipstick stain, sat on the table. Colette closed her eyes in relief. What's it mean? How you doing that? She smiled. It means there are new tricks under the sun, Black Cyrus. There was a heavy thump from the roof of the carriage, and Cyrus bolted up, confusion in his cold black eyes. Who's that? Who's up there? Why, it's the Queen of Hearts, love. And about time, too, Colette added loudly. Cyrus was showered with broken glass and screamed in pain, as a saber, as slender and lithe as the girl who wielded it, stabbed down through the skylight and pierced his arm. He dropped the gun and fell back heavily, his shoulders slamming into the panel of levers and dials. The coach jolted sideways, knocking both of them off their feet. There was a loud, grinding crash of stone and metal, and the coach halted abruptly. 
Cyrus was first to his feet. He flew to the door, opened it, and leapt out, only for a gloved hand to grab his collar from above. He was swung once, twice, screaming in fury, and then the hand let go, and he disappeared from sight. Colette heard a distant splash a few moments later. She tried to stand, but the wreckage of the folding table had her pinned. Why took you so long, she shouted. Let me a hand in here. Cassandra's head appeared upside down in the doorway, but her expression was grim. Colette realized why when the coach tipped forward with a groan of brass. You're about to go over the side of the bridge, Cassandra yelled. Hurry! The coach tipped even further, and Colette could hear the clockwork snorts of the horses dangling in their harnesses pulling the coach over. There was no time to free herself. Blurting out a very unladylike word that surprised Cassandra, Colette pushed a very obvious-looking lever on the panel. There was a twanging noise. The coach immediately righted itself with a thud as the rear wheels touched back down. Colette closed her eyes, dejected, counting the four faraway splashes of the beautiful clockwork horses, pulling one by one into the river below. Cassandra helped her out, Colette retrieving the reddish woolen bag as they left. Back to the star asked Cassandra, concealing her saber under a long cloak as a crowd gathered at the far end of the bridge. Cloaked figures with deep hoods kept back at a hand sign from the dancer. Colette nodded, rubbing her aches and pains. She'd had worse on stage, but the loss of the horses hurt far more. We don't have much choice, Cassandra. I expect there will be a very angry messenger demanding we get his goods out tonight, and my girls need their rest before tomorrow's matinee. She set her head high, adjusted her slightly bruised hat, and the crowd parted before her and Cassandra as they set off back along the midnight streets of Malifaux. After all, the show must go on. For now. And lines, and lines, and lines, and... Well, now for a dive into our mailbag. We do enjoy receiving mail here at the programme, as the gradual build-up of packages and letters in front of our studios creates a formidable defence against any unspeakable horrors that would seek to cause us harm. Those that aren't left outside are put into a sack for me to read out at my leisure. The sack lives in the studio's basement and has row upon row of sharp, dagger-esque teeth. So that's also why we don't read from it often. It's quite territorial, that bag. Today's letter comes from a one William Lazarou. Hello, William. William's letter asks, <clears throat> Announcer, I am just a small boy and have much left to learn. My parents tell me I could become anything if I just tried hard enough. I have started pursuing an interest in ancient, all-seeing, all-knowing God entities, and in line with what my parents have said, would like to become one. What method of ascension would you recommend? Thanks! <laughs> what a nice little boy! And a budding future overlord, it seems. Well, William, positions of that height are all about charisma, and not to blow my own horn, but I like to think I know a thing or two about charisma. Simply develop a dazzling white smile, the teeth don't have to belong to you, a husky speaking voice, and generally be liked by everyone around you. That'll make it all the more surprising when you cast off your mortal shackles for a realm that they cannot even begin to comprehend. Failing that, any dusty old book or cursed relic should serve your purposes fine. 
Best of luck, kiddo. We'll be taking another dip into the mailbag next Never Again. Here is our next tale. Never born. The ground around the abandoned quarry was the colour of dried blood, and creeping shadows striped it inky black as the sun was swallowed by the hills to the west. A cold wind blew up from the badlands, drawing a veil of dust across the rusting hulks of the ancient machines that had once worked the stone. The setting sun and the wind at their backs, four figures moved into the open. From where the boy and his friends stood, atop the cliff face high above the quarry floor, the four figures looked like beetles, and the boy said so. He liked drawing beetles. He had to pluck their legs off to stop them running away, of course. <laughs> said his friend, and the boy did. Long shadows against the umber sky made it hard to see, but the boy's eyes were good. And if he squinted just right, he could make out, yes, holsters, hats, and badges. Were they lawmen, he asked his friend. And his friend told him they were. The boy liked lawmen. They hunted outlaws. Would you like to play a game with them? His friend asked. They would like that. The boy smiled and nodded. As long as I get to win. Virgil stopped. Halting his fellow death marshals with a gesture. Ahead lay Bedlam Quarry, a huge hole of rock filled with shadows and dust. At its centre rose two enormous rusting pylons, still and lifeless. It had last been worked long before the breach had first opened. By whom no one knew or much cared, but Virgil was a grizzled and gaunt veteran of the guild. The scars on his weathered face all the medals he would ever have or need, at eighteen years of service, told him something was very wrong here. I know this place. The quiet, cautious voice of Lucas interrupted Virgil's thoughts, and then he realized the young man had hit the nail on the head. Virgil knew it too. I thought you'd never been out here, he asked, but Lucas slowly shook his head. In the fading evening light, the lad's thin, sunken face made him look like one of the undead he usually hunted. The polish on Lucas' guild badge might still be fresh from the quartermaster's store, but he was one of the most level-headed rookies Virgil had ever known. Most came gunning out of the academy, eager to put Malifaux to rights, one corpse at a time, thinking they were death itself. Most didn't make it. But most didn't have the rattlesnake calm of Lucas. Now the vibe. Cody added gruffly from behind the wild tangle of black hair and beard that framed a face known to every bartender in Malifaux. But I know what I know, and I know them towers. This is going to sound nuts, Chief, said Lucas, but I think I dreamed about this place. A chill ran down Virgil's back. Then Cody spat into the dust and nodded. Greenhorn's right. Last time back in the city. Didn't think nothing of it till right about now. Virgil turned. Dead Eye, their fourth companion, 
A silent, hulking giant, wearing an eye patch and a sour look, said nothing. Instead, he unslung the coffin from his back in one smooth move and readied it, telling Virgil all he needed to know. They all hipped their coffins, carrying them lightly in one hand as if they weighed nothing at all. We all had the same dream, asked Lucas tight-lipped. That ain't possible. We hunt dead men, Virgil replied, tugging his hat down and setting out for the quarry, his fellow death marshals falling in behind him. Don't tell me what ain't possible. Virgil knew now that the tip-off about resurrectionist activity all the way out here was most likely bunkum, but he was having trouble remembering which of his informants in the Malifaux underworld had approached him with it. He had no trouble remembering the directions to the quarry, nor the certainty that there was an undead menace growing out here, but the more he thought about it, the less sense it made, and the harder it became to picture the face of the man who'd told him. It was disappearing from his mind like a dream on waking. Someone had tricked them. No, someone had tricked him. They were going to regret it before they died. Spread out, he ordered, drawing his peacebringer. Might be Rezzers, might not. Ambush? asked Lucas, as the men rode four abreast across the blood-red dirt. Did no one tell you, Greenhorn? cackled Cody, drawing his own pistol and planting a kiss on the underslung blade. This whole darn world's an ambush. Turn you inside out if you let it. So just fill your hand and walk on. His laughter echoed off the towering cliff walls as they headed down the whole road into the crumbling ruins of Bedlam Quarry. Four men waited for them, standing still as statues in the middle of the track running through the old workers' huts. Virgil had led his death marshals down the switchback road, past the waste heaps, dried up settling ponds and the shattered foundations of old brickworks. Strange machines lay half-buried by the side of the road, fused by rust into somber monuments that loomed in the swirling dust and gathering dark. Some had been broken apart. Many anarchists had come here hunting for forgotten lore, and most, so the stories said, had wound up going mad. Some said it was the relentless wind keening among the eerie corpses of brass and iron, or maybe the isolation that caused it but less fanciful men blamed the water. Either way, the quarry had got its name. The huts were a shantytown of corrugated iron and timber, decayed and broken like rotten teeth. Strips of rusted iron clanged and creaked in the gusting winds as the death marshals picked their way through the pools of shadow. Then the road opened, and there they were. Although the last of the setting sun was full on them, their faces were dark masks. They wore long, tattered riding coats. No guns he could see, although their hands were hidden. Virgil shouted a challenge, but it was the wind that rose in answer, howling down out the badlands in a stinging slap of dust. He lost sight of the four men, and when the wind died, they were gone. Well, if that's how they wanted to play it. Cody, Lucas, take the rag. I want them alive. They'll be alive, chief, said Cody ducking under some jagged planks of wood as Lucas fell in behind. They just won't be happy about it. Both men were quickly lost in the swirling dust and deepening shadow. Phantom cries and whispers threaded around as the wind drew voice from the creaking ruins. Virgil turned to the barrel-chested giant beside him. Stay back. I move up and flush him out. When you see him, nail him. Leave one alive. We'll get those masks off him and see what's going on here. 
As he turned to go, Deadeye put a meaty hand on his shoulder. Not masks, chief. Like it mattered. What then? The backs of their heads. They were facing us, Deadeye. Not even you could see the other. Backs of their heads, but from the inside. Those men ain't got no faces. Virgil paused. Rezzers brought the dead back to life, but they kept their heads intact. More or less. He shook his head. He had no time for ifs or maybes. You get a shot. You take it. Holding his coffin in one hand and his peacebringer in the other, Virgil darted off into the gathering dusk. As Virgil disappeared, Deadeye moved back behind the crumbling brickwork of an old washhouse. The road where the four men had stood was still empty. The wind grew again, tugging with dusty hands at pieces of rusty ironwork, sending stones and dry weed tumbling, rattling old wood like broken bones. The ruins were alive, and those faceless men could be anywhere. With a twisted smile, Deadeye reached up and moved his eye patch from his right eye to his left, blinking that right eye in the sudden light. For every hunted man who thought his pursuer was half-blind, there came a moment of cold clarity, usually followed by the end of the hunt. Deadeye hadn't gotten his name because of the patch he wore. He only wore it to give the men he hunted a fighting chance. He could see Virgil now, moving like a cat from shadow to shadow. Cody and Lucas were away off to the right, but something large was trying not to be seen amid the splintered wood of a roofless toolshed to the right of the road. Trying and failing. The shed would get in the way, he reckoned. But a brace of shots would sort that out. A little dead-eye two-step. He hefted his pine coffin, judging the distance in the wind. The death marshal's trademark tool of office was often misunderstood. Much lighter than seemed possible, yet heavy when they needed to be. The magic that filled them made them as deadly as they were striking. He stood, hurling the coffin high into the air above the road, then fired his invitation to dance. Wood splintered at the far side of the shed, and the dark shape bolted from cover, away from the impact and toward the road. The forward step, the coffin arced overhead unseen. Deadeye shot it, just so, and the lid jerked open in mid-air. The figure froze as a brilliant blue light flared above it. With a heavy thud, the coffin slammed down, swallowing the man underneath it. It bounced once and landed on its back, and the roll flipped the lid shut. And the closing step. Get in, growled Deadeye in grim satisfaction, striding forward with his peacebringer at his side. The wind howled its applause. Deadeye planted one boot on the coffin lid. Best see what he'd boxed. But when he towed it open, there was nothing to see in the blinding blue light. He kicked the box shut and crouched, sweeping around the dark ruins with eye and pistol. He hadn't missed. So where was it? Applause turned to screeching laughter as the wind snatched movement from every dark corner of his eye. Nothing could get out of the pine box once a death marshal put it in. Nothing. The laughter rang in his ears as he moved this way and that. Phantom figures moving everywhere he looked. What was happening? Where was his man? The darkness swam around him as if he'd been struck on the head and he reeled, feeling sick and confused. Then everything was moving at once the road heaving up at him while vengeful shadows darted and dashed between the shifting walls. He cursed and waved his pistol wildly, but his sight betrayed him again, and his gun jumped from one hand to the other. He clenched his eyes shut, but the shadows had gotten in there, too. 
The world reeled and the night turned inside out. Deadeye shook his head violently, staggering. He glanced upward, but up was down, and the swirling dust above yawned like a chasm. He fell to his knees, gasping. The silhouette of a man stood before him, and Deadeye grasped him. Help me, he begged. The dark figure eased its long, clawed fingers around Deadeye's mind and spoke. You cannot trust your eyes, it said. Give them to me. He knew what he had to do. Virgil wanted him alive, Lucas whispered, his back pressed against a cold sheet of corrugated iron. On the other side, only just rising over the wailing wind, crunching sounds as one of the masked men crept across broken glass. Cody winked and grinned, his peacebringer cocked and raised. He needs only one. Lucas shook his head and pressed an eye up to a rust hole. It took a moment for him to spot the man, crouched by a busted stove, both hands up at his face. The skin was abnormally pale and so bright that Lucas wondered if the moon was out. But then he saw what the man was doing. He snapped back from the rust hole like it was red hot. Cody's frown asked the question, and Lucas had to wait a moment to answer, his mouth dry. Man's eating his own fingers. Stripping him down to the bone. A look of uncertainty flashed across Cody's pug-like face, but only for a moment. Bull can't shoot, then. I'm three, Greenhorn. One. Cody sprang forward through the opening in the gap-toothed ruin before Lucas had a chance to move. Cody's peacebringer made the iron walls ring like a bell once, twice, and three times, and then Lucas was through the gap. The man lay sprawled in the rubble, his chest a dark mess his white eyes staring up at the hidden sky. Damn it, Cody. Lucas began, but Cody turned on him, fury in his eyes. What if he'd had his piece drawn, you damn fool? Why'd you go spinning that yarn about his fingers for? Lucas glanced down and saw the man's hands. The fingers were unharmed. I know what I saw, he began. Then something about the man's eyes caught his attention. He stepped closer and bent down for a better look. The wind whistled through the rust holes, drowning out Cody's brimstone ire as the iron structure began to ring like glass. Lucas shook his head to clear the noise. It sounded like a child's voice high and far away, and tilted the dead man's head toward him. The eyes shone like soul stones in the gloom, but there was something moving behind them. They were bulging and stretching. Something inside was straining to get out. Lucas reached out a gloved hand. At his touch, both eyes burst like grapes. A swarm of black spiders poured out the empty sockets and swept up Lucas' arm. Leaping to his feet with a yell, he swatted at them, scattering broken bodies and twitching legs. But there seemed to be no end to them. And then they swarmed over his shoulders and face, and into his mouth in a hideous kiss. Horrified, he tried to spit them out, but it was too late, and his scream choked and died as they surged down his throat. As quickly as it had begun, it was over. Coughing and hacking and slapping at himself, Lucas realized the spiders had gone. The only remnant was a strange crawling sensation in his head, as if they'd got in under his skull. The whispering voice on the wind was laughing as he straightened up and looked at Cody, a frozen look on his companion's face. Lucas started laughing, too. Wanna clue me in, partner? hissed Cody. Of course. It all made sense now. What's with the jumping and the yelling? 
There's three of them out there. We all dreamed about this place, remember? That don't mean Jack. Now, we're still dreaming. Don't you see? None of this is real. Lucas raised one hand and put the muzzle of his peacebringer to his palm. Watch. Cody's yell was drowned out by the thunder of the gun. Blood and bits of bone and flesh sprayed the inside of the iron-walled room. Lucas raised a shattered stump and grinned at Cody, who was backing away. See? Nothing happened. I'm fine. It's all just a dream. He put the blood-spattered muzzle of the gun under his chin. Just a dream, he whispered. He had heard the gunfire and heard the whispers on the wind. He knew that his companions were gone, and that soon, whatever they were would be coming to make sport of him. In the gathering storm, Virgil found Deadeye, sprawled lifeless in the road. He took in the raw, empty sockets and blood-stained hands and walked on. The whispers followed. Inside a rusted iron shack, walls black with blood, he found the headless corpse of Lucas. The empty corners echoed to the laughter of the wind. A short distance away, he came upon Cody, or what had been Cody. Virgil had once seen a French baker making one of those fancy loaves the Europeans were fond of. He'd taken strands of soft dough and wound them around one another, folding them back on themselves in a complex knot. It looked like someone had done the same to Cody. His parts had been rearranged, turned inside out. There was no blood, but somehow that made it worse. Then a mouth opened, deep within a nameless fold of flesh, and an inhuman moan escaped through teeth that looked like melted wax. Virgil emptied his pistol into the thing, and could only hope he'd killed it. He rearmed pistol and box and looked up. Four shapes that looked like men stood abreast, untouched by the storm. They started towards him. He didn't move. The wind howled and dust peppered his face. The four shapes grew closer, their forms abandoning their pretense of humanity and twisting into nightmares. Still, he didn't move, didn't shoot, didn't run. The wind raged, and the voice born on it changed. It sounded angry. I'm not going to fight, Virgil growled. Stock still as the four shapes reached out for him. Anger, black as a thundercloud and clear as lightning. Clear enough to trace. Virgil's head snapped up. Not far away, the bones of a brick boiler house stood black against the dusk, the source of the whispers. He rolled, ducking the outstretched claws of the nightmares and rose, throwing the pine coffin true as an arrow. It was light when he left his hand, but heavy when it landed. It slammed into the remnants of the brick wall like a locomotive, collapsing it in a cloud of dust. The coffin had barely come to rest when Virgil arrived at full tilt. He leapt, landing on the box and rode it down the fresh scree of bricks, springing clear at the bottom. A figure moved, partially buried, and Virgil hauled him clear. So he gets angry when someone refuses to play his game, he roared, drawing back his peacebringer with his razor-sharp blade. Just like a... The words died on his lips as he realized he was holding a small, blonde-haired boy in a white nightgown. Child? Incredibly, the boy didn't look afraid. He looked annoyed. It's not fair. You said I would win. With a chill that slowed the blood in his veins, Virgil knew the boy wasn't talking to him. There was a sound behind him, 
and he brought his peace-bringer scything down toward the boy's neck, and then he was rising, held in a grip of iron, his legs flailing. The boy forgotten, Virgil saw fresh blood spray into the night air, and realized with a distant regret it was his own. Looking down, he lived long enough to see the claw that protruded from his chest and his own heart fluttering feebly in its grasp, before the black talons crushed it to a pulp. The death marshal's corpse landed at the base of the iron tower, some thirty yards away. The boy paid it no attention. He was frowning at the hulking monster before him. The horror of teeth and claws brewed from the very stuff of nightmares. And then he smiled. The sort of open, guileless smile only a child can manage. I did! I did win! He embraced his friend before climbing up to sit on its massive shoulder. He clapped his hands. That was fun, he said. So, what will we do now? Listeners, because bad things happen. <laughs> 